My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Jasmine Thomas. The chain of events leading to a land occupation in the south end of Winnipeg for two months this past summer are mostly pretty clear. But there are a couple of crucial links that the occupiers themselves still don't understand, despite all of their effort and all of their research. Namely, they don't understand how the Parker wetlands went from being designated as ecologically sensitive by the city of Winnipeg around 2002, to being rezoned for industrial use in 2009, and traded by the city in a land swap to a developer with a less than stellar reputation. They have their suspicions, the city's prior administration is widely known to have engaged in what Jasmine describes as, quote, shady dealings, but the details are far from clear. Everything else, though, they're pretty certain of. They have no doubt whatsoever, for instance, that the efforts to pave over the Parker wetlands are of a piece with Winnipeg's long history of municipal colonialism. The site is right next to the locations of two historic Métis settlements, Roostertown and Tintown, hence the name Roostertown Blockade for the action. Roostertown was cleared of its Métis residents starting in the late 1950s to make way for commercial development. The wetland was integral to the life of these communities, being regularly used for trapping and recreation, and there's some oral history evidence of historic burials there too. The Parker wetlands also contained one of the few remnants in the area of aspen forest and prairie still in much the same state as it would have been prior to colonization. Community groups and environmentalists have been fighting to maintain the site as a sort of eco-park since the 2009 land swap. In July of 2017, however, though the developer had obtained no permits to do so, clear-cutting began. A live video on Facebook showed machinery leveling the forest in real time, and both online and offline networks of nearby residents, environmentalists, and other activists in the city started to hum with outrage. Before long, people began to gather at the site. Jenna Vandal, a Métis and Anishinaabe woman, sent a call out for support, and soon enough, the people who had gathered decided that to prevent further damage to the site, they would set up a blockade and stay as long as they could manage. And what they managed was impressive. For two months, in the face of hostility from the developer and growing measures to get them off the land, a diverse group of indigenous and non-indigenous people maintained a consistent presence and preserved what remained of the ecosystem. The group organized themselves, they took care of the logistics, they made decisions horizontally and democratically as best they could, and they built support politically, too, though perhaps not as much as they would have liked, given that the time and energy required to maintain an occupation in a physically isolated part of the city meant they could not do as much outreach, public education, and relationship building as they wanted. Still, they got plentiful, if not particularly supportive, local media coverage, and they found that any time they had a chance to engage with other Winnipeggers about the issue, they got support. The blockade ended in September. All along, the developer had been pursuing legal mechanisms to evict the occupiers, 
and they were saddened but not surprised that he eventually succeeded in obtaining an injunction from what is, as Jasmine points out, a colonial court. They elected to abide by the court's decision and left the site, and very quickly the development activities on the site resumed. The group anticipated that their activities from that point would follow two strands, pursuing the kinds of political work in the community that the logistics of the occupation had made so practically difficult, and also seeking a judicial review of the land swap, which they suspect may have been conducted improperly. They have indeed been doing both of these things, but the developer threw a surprise their way. Even after they left the site, he named 49 of them in a lawsuit seeking more than half a million dollars in damages. Now they have no choice but to engage in extensive fundraising for legal costs to fight the lawsuit, which could conceivably drag on for years. Nonetheless, despite this barrier and despite the damage already done to the land, they remain hopeful that a combined political and legal strategy may eventually succeed in returning the land to the city of Winnipeg, which they hope will then consult with Métis and other indigenous people in the city in determining the site's ultimate fate. Jasmine Thomas is a white settler woman, a sociologist, and a central participant in the blockade. She speaks with me about the land, about the Roostertown blockade at the Parker Wetlands, and about the legal fight that the occupiers face today. My name is Jasmine Thomas, and I'm a white settler situated on the Treaty 1 lands in the Winnipeg region in Manitoba. And I became involved with the Roostertown blockade in July 2017. And that was the date that the Roostertown blockade started, about July 13th, 2017. Basically, Jenna Vandal, who's also a resident of Winnipeg of Anishinaabe Métis descent, allegedly put a call out on social media to stop the clear-cutting of an area known as the Parker Wetlands in Winnipeg. I'm a sociologist that focuses on anti-racism and anti-oppression work, and so that's sort of my professional background. And then on a personal level, I've just really been involved in activism since I was pretty young. Uh, I think my first introduction to rights-based work was, I think, animal rights in seventh grade and kind of all the way through school to some of the anti-war and uh, anti-oppression decolonization stuff that's been going on in Winnipeg over the last couple decades. The land in question is known locally as the Parker Wetlands, and it's situated in the Fort Garry area of Winnipeg. And this land is situated right next to the CN Rail. So I think that is maybe part of the reason why it wasn't developed in the past. I only learned about it myself very recently, so a lot of Winnipeggers don't know about the Parker Wetlands. But it was a really beautiful forest. In, I believe, 2002, the city of Winnipeg designated it as ecologically sensitive. It's an area of land that really represents what the prairies and the aspen forests looked like before colonization because it was very undisturbed. And in terms of its cultural significance, the Parker Wetlands Forest was located next to the Métis communities of Roostertown and Tintown. And these were towns that Métis communities developed, I think, in the late 1800s, and they existed until 1960. 
they were vibrant communities where Métis people, you know, built space for themselves and they used that forest for trapping, for just, you know, generally enjoying nature. And there was oral history of perhaps grave sites being located in the forest as well. As the city expanded, that land became more and more valuable. So as the suburbs grew kind of in the post-World War II era, the city of Winnipeg expropriated the land of Roostertown to build a shopping center. So Roostertown was situated in the Grant Park Mall area of Winnipeg. And yeah, so the people that were living there were basically forced off the land and they had to relocate yet again. It's <laughs> sort of ongoing municipal colonization. So how did the blockade start? The Parker wetlands were designated as ecologically sensitive in the early 2000s. And then somehow the city of Winnipeg and a local developer traded the lands. And so the land used to be public. And then through this land swap, the developer obtained this really ecologically sensitive land. And it was designated as an industrial zoning instead of ecologically sensitive. That land swap occurred in 2009. And so for almost a decade now, community groups and environmentalists that live sort of around the area have been fighting the city and the developer to maintain that land as sort of an ecologically sensitive park. And then in July, I think it was the 12th of July of 2017, the land started to be clear cut and that, of course, spread throughout face-to-face and social media networks. And people were very upset. Somebody on Facebook shared a live video of the machine cutting the forest down. And that really mobilized people to do something. There were a lot of different resistance movements throughout the years to protect this land. And at this point, when we saw it on social media, that was kind of the last straw. We had to do something. So the live video was shared and people saw that the land was being clear-cut. And Jenna Vandell, who is an Indigenous Métis Anishinaabe woman, she went down there and shared on social media that she would be going and she asked for support. And so anyone who was connected to the activist and environmentalist and Indigenous rights communities in Winnipeg tried to get down there to support her, as well as the ongoing environmental resistance from the local community that lived nearby the forest. So why exactly did that rezoning and land swap happen back in 2009? That's a really good question. The problem with the Parker wetlands and the Roostertown blockade is we came into the game late, and this has been an ongoing story since 2009. We're really trying to uncover all the details behind how the land was traded, There's been a lot of, uh, let's say, corruption from the former municipal government. Those corruption events, you know, related to the police station and all sorts of things were going on. So we're trying to prepare a judicial review to see how this land was swapped and if it was even done following all the correct procedures. So basically, if it was done justly or if it needs to be reviewed and if any charges, I guess, are warranted. And I understand that the developer didn't actually have a permit to start the clear-cutting in July? Yeah, that's a really great point. So throughout this process, we've been in contact with the city a lot. People were constantly calling city councillors and the mayor and, you know, all of our political representatives because it was a surprise that this land was being clear-cut. 
This was a really important and beautiful forest, really pristine wildlife habitat. And to see it clear cut like that so suddenly was really, really upsetting for the community. And the response that we initially got from the city was that this was private land and a private landowner can cut down trees on their land. And now at first that sounds very reasonable. You know, if you have your yard and you have a tree on it, you want to cut it down, you don't need a permit for that generally. But the difference is, is that this is a really large scale development act here. This isn't just someone cutting down trees. This is someone clear cutting a forest that is development. So yes, absolutely. They need the proper plans, development plans and permits to do such a thing. But we were getting mixed information from the city on that. So either it was their assumption that he didn't need a permit or they are also not following the proper procedures in terms of development within the city limits. So as far as we know, even to this day now, there have been no development plans submitted and no permits or anything issued for the removal of all that vegetation. Tell me more about how people responded to the call-out to come and defend the site. It was a very organic movement. Jenna Vandal put out the word and people just started to show up and then it spread throughout the local activist community in Winnipeg. So people came down to the land and it was very surreal. It was basically just a decimated forest. The aspen trees were shredded by the tree cutting machines and it was just like a clear field. I know personally, I I rode my bike in and I came up to the group and they were waiting at the edge of the field there where the machines were. And that was really the start of the Roostertown blockade of, you know, people just showed up and eventually people started bringing tents. And as the days passed, more tents arrived and more people arrived, more supplies arrived. And uh, it just sort of grew from there. And what was the encampment like? Throughout the first couple of days, we were just trying to get organized to find out, okay, well, what do we need to do? Are we going to camp on the land? How are we going to organize that? And it really just felt like we were playing catch up the whole time. If we had had proper notice that this was happening, maybe we could have been fully prepared because some of the key organizers who were spending a lot of time sleeping out in the camp, they basically sacrificed their whole summer and it was a very tiring experience for a lot of people. But at the same time, it was such a important example of direct action that people can take in these sort of extreme situations where the land is in threat. And I found that personally to be something that gave me a lot of hope that such a diverse group of people could come together to protect a really important piece of land. We were fairly organized in a lot of ways. We kind of had to be. So we held meetings, I would say maybe about once a week or more, like formal meetings where, you know, minutes were taken and we had a more formalized meeting structure. And then a lot of informal meetings just when sort of key organizers gathered at the camp. And those meetings were really helpful because in the beginning especially, there were times where we were able to share in ceremony with Indigenous peoples and, you know, settlers and Indigenous people could talk about how important this land was. And it was a really great moment for solidarity building. And those meetings were very important just because we really needed to formulate a plan about what we were trying to do and where we wanted to go and how we were going to get there. How did the developer and the authorities respond to the blockade? 
When we were camped out on the land, Winnipeg police did come out several times and they were always pretty friendly with us. And they basically saw this as a civil matter, which makes sense. Police across the country often see these kinds of blockades as definitely a civil matter and they wait for the courts to determine what their actions will be. The developer would always call the police. They had to show up. This is our assumption anyway. The police showed up several times and it was always the same, that it was a civil matter and they were just checking to make sure everyone was safe. The developer usually had staff on the land. There was one four person in particular that was often there and they would make sure to come by regularly and tell us that we needed to leave. And we always said, well, this is contested land. The ownership is contested. This is Indigenous land. But eventually, throughout the process, the developer put private property signs up and then even erected a fence around the clear-cut field and hired private security that were there 24-7. They also had a private investigator watching us and doing investigations on people. So it was extremely intimidating Before that fence went up, a lot of community members would come by and visit us and bring food and talk to us about how important that land was for them. But once the fence went up, it was really just the key organizers that still were present on the land because it's very intimidating to see that. How able were you to build support among the Indigenous organizations in the city during the blockade? This was a really interesting case where a lot of different people from various backgrounds came together. There were Indigenous land defenders, there were a lot of settlers that were either students or retirees, a lot of women. And so that diversity was a very positive thing, but it was also challenging to manage at times because people definitely came to the blockade at various levels of understanding regarding the history of colonization in the region. And I thought that throughout the time that the blockade was active, people really learned a lot. In terms of solidarity building with Indigenous groups in the city, I think it will depend on two things. So the Indigenous land defenders who were present at the blockade obviously had good existing relationships amongst Indigenous groups in the city. And then for some of the settlers in the group, we always felt that we didn't have enough time or energy to build community again because we always felt like we were playing catch up. And so I think that more could have been done to build those connections between some of the organizations in the city that represent Indigenous issues. I think that's one area where the white settlers could have done better, myself included. And now we're hoping to do a little bit more of that. But I thought it was a really interesting case because the Parker Wetlands is sort of situated in the south part of the city. It's a really inaccessible area. It's hard to bus there. You really needed a car to get there. So I think that alone is a bit of a limitation. So just the geography of it was challenging. And what kinds of things did you hear from ordinary Winnipeggers, meaning folks who aren't necessarily involved politically themselves, about the blockade? I think overwhelmingly, most people are really positive about the Roostertown blockade. 
I think some people just didn't really know what it was about, and so they wanted more information. And then once you get talking with people and you start mentioning, well, this is linked to all of the sort of shady dealings of the previous municipal government, then people sort of nod and have a bit more of an understanding because I think most Winnipeggers know that a lot of really questionable deals occurred within the last couple of decades. So I would say very wide-ranging support once people were aware of what was going on. How did the blockade end? There were a lot of sort of legal stepping stones that led to the end of the blockade. The developer filed to receive an injunction, which would mean that the blockade would have to be removed. And that initially started in July. And the justice that heard the case in July rescheduled for a new hearing, I believe. It was supposed to happen in November to give us time to prepare our defense and find legal representation, things like that. And then throughout a series of appeals, the developer put forth another request for an injunction. And on September 14th, I believe, the judge agreed and determined that people who were participating in the blockade were trespassing. And so we needed to leave the land at that time. We had been present on the land for about two months at that point, and it was sad taking down the blockade. You know, it had become a very special place for a lot of people. It was a spiritual place for a lot of the Indigenous land defenders that were participating. After the injunction was granted, I think everyone was sort of expecting it. We knew that within this colonial legal system that we were trespassing. Like, that is not something that surprised us. We just wanted to delay as much as possible to ensure that, you know, the animals that lived in the forest had a chance to migrate, for example. And we really wanted to find all of our options and exhaust all channels to make sure that the developer in the city knew that there was significant opposition to this destruction and so-called development. And I understand the developer is also suing the occupiers? When the injunction was granted in mid-September, we all, again, we weren't extremely surprised by that. And so we all took down the camp and, you know, said, okay, well, everyone rest up and take care of yourselves. We anticipated that we would see each other again, but maybe not under the same circumstances. And then in early October, there was an amendment to the initial, what's called a statement of claim. And that amendment was including, I think, 49 additional defendants. And basically, 49 of us are being sued for alleged trespassing, but also a lot of other things that are really quite unreasonable. One of the things on there is that we were intimidating and there's a lot of economic harms that are claimed that are quite unreasonable from our perspective. We did not get involved in this blockade to harm the developer. Most of us didn't really even know who he was until, you know, we did some research about the land in question. And so it wasn't like we were intentionally trying to harm anyone. The purpose of the blockade from the beginning was simply to save the land and protect the forest and the wildlife. How are the occupiers responding to the lawsuit? There's several different streams. So some people have acquired legal representation sort of as a collective. And then there are a couple people who are representing themselves. And one of the people that are representing themselves decided to oppose the amendment. And what that means is they'll have to hear it and make sure that all of the elements are argued sufficiently in order for that amendment to be approved. 
I don't know all the legal details, but I think we're all just trying to learn about what the implications are for us. None of us have really ever experienced anything like this before. This is my first time being sued. So um, I'm trying to figure out what that means for me. And we're all just trying to make sure that we have clear communication between everyone because, you know, 49 people, that's a lot of people to keep on the same page. And so communication is one of our top priorities. We've done a lot of legal fundraising to make sure that the people who have acquired legal representation have the finances to pay for that. And we're really looking at something that's probably... If it goes to trial, you know, it might take up to three to five years before we really know what the final outcome is. So we're getting ready for a long battle. Is the land back to being actively developed since the blockade ended? Yes, unfortunately. We cleared the land, I believe, on the 14th or 15th of September in accordance with the injunction. On September 19th, we saw the clear-cutting machine back on the land, and we had people taking video from the boundaries of the Parker wetlands, because none of us can go on the land. Otherwise, we're in contempt of court, I believe. And so a bunch of us watched them clear-cutting. And I should mention that the area that was the most ecologically significant was the area that the developer completely cut first. And there is very little forest left. And I believe there was a permit issued to do some sort of grading, which I guess is sort of flattening out the land. So yeah, there's ongoing development on the site now. We keep trying to stop it. But at this point, we're just hoping to keep people accountable and then we can see what the damage is to the land. We have to use legal channels and other political channels to try to still raise our opposition to this. And what do the former occupiers have planned next? We have a lot of plans. Now that we have the luxury of having more time, because we don't have to think about the physical camp anymore, so we have more time to put into things like public outreach and building some of those relationships with the Indigenous communities in other areas of the city. So part of it is going to be community outreach and public education to make sure that people, both Indigenous and settlers alike, are aware of what happened at the Roostertown blockade and the Parker wetlands and what the developer and the city have been doing. And another major component of what we'll be doing over the next, well, probably the next few years is fundraising for legal costs. And then the other legal pathway is making sure that we support the people that are submitting the judicial review and getting as much public support for that as well. What can people in other parts of the country do to act in support? Well, I think there's a couple things that people can do. Definitely talk about it. You know, tell people about what's happening in Winnipeg, about the Rooster Town blockade, and just share information. It's really really helpful to hear from other people around the country, both to hear support, but also to hear how maybe they have learned direct action tactics as a result of this case. Another great thing that people can do is honestly just some financial support for the people who are being sued. That's extremely valuable and we really appreciate all the support that everyone has shown us. You have been listening to my interview with Jasmine Thomas about the Roostertown blockade at the Parker Wetlands in Winnipeg and about their legal battles and consequent fundraising efforts. To learn more, search for Roostertown blockade at Parker Wetlands on Facebook and legal help for Roostertown blockade on GoFundMe.
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. <laughs>